I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing the upcoming Second Belt and Road Forum, which is scheduled to be held in Beijing in late April. We'll also talk about the progress of the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, which might be characterized as the good, the bad, and the ugly. The BRI, which in Chinese is called One Belt One Road, was first announced by Xi Jinping in 2013. The Chinese describe it as aimed at increasing connectivity and cooperation with other countries, primarily through infrastructure, trade, and investment. Some observers see larger strategic goals, including using economic leverage to create political influence and potentially gaining access to ports around the world. In recent years, China's BRI projects and motivations have come under increased scrutiny due to accusations of low-quality construction, reliance on imported Chinese labor and materials, and predatory loan practices. To discuss the upcoming forum and China's overall BRI strategy. I'm joined by my CSIS colleague, Mr. Jonathan Hillman. John is a senior fellow with the CSIS Simon Chair in Political Economy and director of the Reconnecting Asia Project. His research focuses on the intersection of economics and foreign policy, including trade, globalization, economic statecraft, and of course, China's BRI. Prior to joining CSIS, John served as a policy advisor at the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. Thanks for joining us today, John. Thanks for having me. So the first Belt and Road Forum took place in May of 2017. Why did China organize that first forum, and what were the major achievements? So I think of that meeting,、um, which I had the opportunity to attend, as kind of the, the coming out party for Belt and Road. And I think there were basically two audiences. One was an international audience, and they were able to attract about 110 representatives from different countries and international organizations. And so that that in itself is a statement. It's sort of saying the world is showing up for our big initiative.、Um, but at the time, as you remember, there was also a domestic audience.、Um, the Party Congress was coming up, and so I think there was also an incentive、um, for you know Xi Jinping to have this event and look as powerful as he can. Um, you know, big speeches. He was followed by、um, Vladimir Putin and、uh, Erdogan, and so you know, this is like I think about 30 heads of state were there. So it was a big. I think it was a big symbolic event.、Um, a little bit light on the substance,、um, but that's like a lot of the Belt and Road. So since you attended that forum, what were the discussions about? What were the participants' attitudes? Did people have very high expectations at that time? Yeah, I think you know the Belt and Road was still in sort of a honeymoon phase at that point, and so something that's always been very compelling about it is、um, all these offers for investment and particularly infrastructure that's usually at the top of the list for developing countries.、Um, and so, you know, this is an initiative; it really speaks to the needs of developing countries. And so that's I think one reason why they were able to attract such large numbers,、um, and why people were very、um, enthusiastic about the initiative, at least in the beginning. So this year, and and we're only two years later. There obviously have been a lot of critiques and criticism of the BRI. What do you think will be different at this summit?、Um, apparently, China's still expecting a lot of countries to participate. Yeah, so I think the roster will still be quite impressive.、Um, although, you know, I know that the U.S. is、um, not going to send, a, you know, a high-level official,、um, but the the numbers will look good, and Chinese state media will. Have good facts to say, you know, about who 
who showed up and who attended. Um, I think, you know, one of the major tensions is that um, this has been a difficult past two years for the Belt and Road. Uh, the Belt and Road brand has been a bit tarnished. Um, and, you know, some of those episodes are, are pretty well known. So uh, Hamantota Port in Sri Lanka has become the poster child for debt trap diplomacy is what, you know, U.S. officials refer to it as. Um, there have been um, corruption scandals in Malaysia and other countries related to Belt and Road projects. And so I think when people think about the Belt and Road, um, they, they also now have to think about the risks associated with it. So um, as I said at the um, outset, and you've now uh, started filling in some of those blanks, there have been complaints uh, uh, in many countries about various aspects of these Belt and Road uh, projects. And the Trump administration, as you said, has used the term debt trap diplomacy and predatory lending. Do you think that these charges are fair? Do other countries agree with these charges? And then how is China reacting to these labels that are being used? First of all, there's no question that Belt and Road lending has debt sustainability challenges and that it's been very risky, particularly for small economies. Um, so Sri Lanka falls into that category. Um, Djibouti falls into that category. Tajikistan. Um, there's, I think, about a short list of eight economies. Um, the Center for Global Development did a study on some of the debt dynamics of the Belt and Road. So they came up with, I think, about eight high-risk economies. And so this is not a problem that's limited to Sri Lanka or any one case, but I think we can say is a broad challenge for the Belt and Road. I think the question, though, is that the term debt trap diplomacy, at least as I interpret it, I think it implies that China had an intent to drive up levels to a certain, you know, to an unsustainable um, level and then take something when the debt can't be repaid. And I'm not sure yet that the motive has been has been proven I think we can see in the example of the port in Sri Lanka, that does certainly have strategic value. You could imagine why China would want to possess that port. But I think that it could also be explained by being quite chaotic in its lending and then opportunistic when things do not go well. And so I'm not sure that China set out to make the port in Sri Lanka a failure commercially. Um, And certainly local dynamics in Sri Lanka played a very important part in that port not working out. We're talking about a a Sri Lankan president um, who built that port in sort of his home base of support, um, spent $800,000 on an opening ceremony for the port before it was finished, um, and spent only maybe five or $6,000 on a feasibility study for an airport nearby, which is now often referred to as the world's emptiest airport. Um, And so you can see in those two transactions where his priorities were, you know, he wanted to take credit for announcing new projects. He really wasn't that concerned about the commercial viability of these projects. Whether China wanted those projects to fail in the first place, I'm not sure. And that is the only case, the Hambantota port, in which a an asset has been taken over by China as a result of uh, failure to pay loans. Is that correct? I think there are a few examples of one example in Tajikistan where some land was taken as basically a swap to reduce some debt. So I think, you know, the Hambantota case, although it has become um, quite widely used, has not been replicated yet. And of course, we hope that it's not replicated. Um, And I think there's probably merit in using the case to prevent that kind of behavior. Um, But it is in some ways exceptional to this point. 
Can you talk a little bit about some of the projects that are being successfully implemented and why those have been more successful? Is it a function of the recipient country? Is it a different practices that are pursued by China in those instances? What has made them successful? Yes, yeah, so I think one of the most successful projects is uh, Port of Piraeus in Greece. And so that's a project where a Chinese company invested, built a new terminal, um, a subsidiary of Costco, uh, a huge you know, Chinese state-owned uh, shipping company, is operating the port, um, and throughput has gone up quite you know, significantly. And I think you know, that situation, I think, I think the Greek government probably deserves some credit for you know, having uh, an environment in which uh, outside investment without it leading to more negative outcomes. Um, and so I think, I think governance and the quality of institutions really does matter China's investing a lot in some very difficult areas. And so, you know, areas where corruption is quite high, where governance is, and rule of law is weak. Um, and so I think that those are, are significant factors when you're looking at this at sort of a country level. Can you estimate how much money China has actually devoted so far to these Belt and Road uh projects. There's uh, uh, the number of $3 trillion was (laughs) thrown around very early. I know that there were projects that pre-existed the announcement of the BRI that all of a sudden were sort of relabeled BRI projects. So I'm sure this is a very difficult thing to do. And some are investments, I understand. Some are loans. And do you have any sense as to how much money has been put into the Belt and Road? Yeah. So I think, I think, the, the numbers keep going up and up, and they've been inflated, I think, um, well beyond the, the real levels of activity. So um, one of the numbers that you often hear is $1 trillion in promised investment for infrastructure. Um, I've also heard $4 trillion. I've heard as high as $8 trillion. Um, and, you know, those are magnitudes of order difference. Um, and, you know, I think when you start to add up the projects, um, it's also difficult I mean, this is a moving target. It's part art, part science, because um, there's no definition for what a Belt and Road project is, right? And as countries join, <coughs> the the overall pot of projects and participants grows. Um, but l- just focusing on the infrastructure part of this, which is what the Reconnecting Asia project monitors closely, um, you know, I think between two, 2014 and the end of 2017, we're tracking about $90 billion of transportation projects across the supercontinent of Eurasia. So that's not everywhere the Belt and Road goes, but that's many of the most active areas. Um, the uh, the um, China Global Inve- Investment Tracker that AEI runs, I think, had um, a number close to 350, $350 billion, again, between 2014 to 2017. Um, so, you know, a lot of this, again, it's a little bit of art, but I think we can say quite confidently that that one trillion number, we're not anywhere near that yet. Um, and so it would still take several years to get to the one trillion and promised investment for infrastructure. Just to let you plug a little bit more uh, from Reconnecting Asia, if users go to the website, what exactly can they find there? Yes, go to our website, reconnectingasia.csis.org. Um, the centerpiece of the site is an interactive map, which will show you, um, at this point, a little over 13,000 infrastructure projects that we're tracking. So we're looking, we're looking at not just what China's doing, but what other countries are doing, too. I think that's important because Belt and Road gets you know, a lot of headlines, a lot of attention. Um, 
But in Southeast Asia, for example, Japan is outspending China and several countries. And so the, the story is bigger than China. Um, we're seeing this massive global infrastructure build-out happening. Um, and so I think it's, it's relevant whether you're interested in China um, or Asia or Africa. Um, and so, you know, that's supposed to be a resource um, for researchers, academics, um, anyone, anyone following this story. So let's talk a little bit about more about this uh, next Belt and Road Forum uh, that's about to take place. We've heard some rumors that the Chinese are going to make some adjustments to try to improve the image uh, of uh, of the Belt and Road, uh, but we also know that uh, this is Xi Jinping's flagship foreign policy project. It's written into the Constitution, and there is little likelihood that anybody is going to publicly criticize anything that they've done. So. What kinds of adjustments could China make? Do you think they're going to be small adjustments on the margins, or do you think they'll be more fundamental? So I think this is this is a huge question for the the forum and also beyond the forum. I think it's an important time to ask this question, but it's something that I think the Chinese are struggling with because this has been a, a learning experience for them. Um, and I think that you know they are now quite aware that they have to address debt sustainability issues. Um, that their environmental standards in some countries have, you know, the projects that they've done have not been up to par, um, that they need to um, also think about how to control some of the corruption issues. Um, so you hear that occasionally in these kind of anonymous quotes given to reporters, but we haven't seen it yet in policy, and we haven't seen it yet, I don't think, in the way that projects are being implemented. So I think the challenge is um, – how can you affect change without maybe necessarily admitting to all of these issues? Because as you say, this is Xi Jinping's signature initiative. Um, so they need to kind of, they need to turn the ship a little bit without alerting everyone um, to the fact that that's what's going on. There's been a lot of emphasis in uh, China on telecommunications technologies such as 5G, and uh, China's been pushing for a digital component in the Belt and Road, uh, which they uh, talk about as the digital Silk Road. What will be the importance of the digital Silk Road in the Belt and Road initiative going forward? When most people, if they've heard about the Belt and Road, I think what normally comes to mind are these images of trains maybe going through the middle of Asia um, and sort of the ancient Silk Road being rekindled through roads and railways. But I think one of the most important dimensions and maybe underappreciated dimensions is the higher tech, the telecommunications dimension of the Belt and Road. Um, and so you, you see that going hand in hand with um, some of the infrastructure projects that you would normally think of, because when China builds roads and railways, linear infrastructure, it also has an opportunity to lay fiber optic cables um, and install telecommunications equipment. And I think the, the digital Silk Road poses um, probably even a broader set of challenges to U.S. interests, potentially. Um, this is something that's not only a commercial um, interest for the U.S., but um, it also touches on issues of freedom of speech and some of the governance issues around these technologies. Um, so last week, for example, um, I was in uh, Kenya where um, Huawei has installed uh, safe city equipment at both in Nairobi and in Mombasa. And so there are cameras now, um, you know, a whole set of sort of, you know, centralized seeing eye, big brother style equipment in both of those cities um, that Huawei talks about as being kind of a, um, 
a case a successful case study for them, and that is that is part that part of the digital Silk Road, um, and I think you know again poses sort of a broader set of challenges for us to think about. So, do you see the Chinese as trying to use the Belt and Road to set new standards that pose a challenge to the uh, the liberal international order? Yes. So I think it's a different type of standard setting, though. Traditionally, at least the U.S. way of of setting standards has been through international agreements uh, and often through trade deals. Um, And that's been the sort of one of the ways the U.S. has um, established international standards. The way that China, I think, is setting standards through the Belt and Road is more from the bottom up. Um, It's more from countries adopting more of their technologies for gaining market share um, and then you are basically, um, you don't start out by saying, I want to sign up to Chinese standards, but over time you have signed up. You mentioned earlier that the United States uh, is not sending a representative to this upcoming uh, BRI summit. And in 2017, it was the senior director for uh, Asia, Matt Pottinger, who attended. Uh, all, and, and that was really arranged at the, at the last minute. Uh, so maybe an, a U.S. embassy official or two will go as probably observers. Uh, why is it that the United States is backing away? And how does the rest of the world react to this since there's so much participation in the Belt and Road Initiative and the only country, as I understand it, that is also not sending uh, a participant uh, from their capital is India, which did not participate in the one uh, two years ago. So how is this perceived by the rest of the world, and why is the United States changing its representation this time? Does it reflect a change in policy? So I think this is, in a way, consistent with some of the statements that the U.S. has made about the Belt and Road. Um, I think something that's striking about the U.S. position on the Belt and Road is that, um, you know, it's been quite critical. The way that a lot of U.S. uh, partners and allies have talked about the Belt and Road is to point out that the world needs infrastructure. And if anyone can provide infrastructure that meets the following standards, then that would be great. Um, As it turns out, China is not meeting many of those standards. And so that criticism comes through. Um, But I think, you know, the that, that sort of second approach, the sort of principles or standards-based approach, leaves room for a little more engagement. Um, I think India is an exceptional case because um, China, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is basically the flagship corridor of the Belt and Road, runs through disputed Kashmir. And so they have a very concrete, serious um, uh, issue with the Belt and Road. But at the same time, even India, which is in that probably, you know, probably the most vocal of all of the Belt and Road critics, India is still doing some projects with China that were they happening in another country would probably have the Belt and Road flag over them. And so the engagement continues, um, and as, as I think it should. Um, uh, and so I do hope that the U.S. You know, at least sends observers because I think um, it's hard to know what's going on if you don't show up. 
I wanted to ask about the recent decision by Italy uh, to join the Belt and Road Initiative, and then there was also Luxembourg. So we've had some, you know, European uh, democracies uh, that have that have joined. It's really part of a larger question. Lots of these countries sign these agreements, but they're MOUs, as I understand it. They're not legally binding. So what is the significance of countries like Italy joining the BRI? And the U.S. obviously was critical of this. Um, is this something that has any real real meaning? Um, and are all the countries that are signing agreements actually then carrying out projects? So I think the, I think Italy's decision to sign a, a Belt and Road um, MOU is interesting. I don't think it's worth the U.S. making too much of it for the reasons that you pointed out, which is that this is not a legally binding document. It literally says at the bottom, um, this is not a legally binding document. Um, and, and a lot of the language is quite aspirational and vague. Uh, and so the, the importance is mostly symbolic and political. Um, and whether it really means anything, you know, I think the Chinese could have said, you need to sign this or we're not going to conclude some commercial deals with you. That might have happened. Um, and so there might have been a quid pro quo with that. Um, but when you look at the group of countries th- that have signed MOUs, which is quite large now, signing an MOU doesn't guarantee you anything, really. There are countries that have signed up to the Belt and Road like South Korea, and have received very little uh, as participants. Um, there are countries like Pakistan that have, have received quite a lot. Um, and so, you know, and, and also actually on, on Xi's um, same Europe trip, you know, he announced many deals in France, right? France hasn't signed a Belt and Road MOU, and, and business continues. And so I think, I think, the, I think countries shouldn't be pressured into signing something like that. And I don't think that we should make too much of it when they do occasionally. <laughs> so lastly, um, what kind of approach do you think that the United States and other democratic countries should take towards the BRI? I know one suggestion that I've been making is that we should be helping uh, potential recipient countries to negotiate better loan terms, longer repayment terms, uh, to uh, demand that local labor be included and environmental uh, protection components be included, that we should help uh, countries get a better deal. But of course, if we do that, then that contributes to the success of a Chinese-funded project. And I wonder maybe the Trump administration doesn't want that outcome. But when people ask you, what should what should the U.S. do? What's your answer? Well, I, I agree with everything you just said. Um, I think it's certainly within, strongly within the U.S. interest and within the U.S. capability to help developing countries be their own best advocates. Um, and so I think that there's, there's actually one interesting recent case where the U.S., I think, played a very strategic and smart role um, and that's with a port in Myanmar, which the initial price tag was over seven billion dollars, um, and so the U.S. sent some technical advisors, some lawyers, to help review the contract. Um, and lo and behold, the contract was negotiated down to a little over a billion dollars. So the U.S. got to check China in a responsible way, saved Myanmar six billion dollars, um, and I don't think it cost the U.S. all that much to do that. Um, so I think. More of that um, would be important. I also think, you know, the U.S. is not going to have the public funds to spend on infrastructure abroad. You know, I think anyone would, here in the U.S. would say, let's fix our own infrastructure first. So politically, it would be very difficult to go uh, on a much larger spending program <coughs> overseas. But the U.S. does have deep pools of private capital 
And so to the extent that the government, U.S. government, through um, the new Development Finance Corporation, which will be stood up this October, um, and other instruments, including through the multilateral development banks, the extent to which they can mobilize private capital toward projects, um, that's really where more of the firepower will be. Um, that's not an original idea. It's really difficult, but it's still worth thinking about. Um, and just on this topic of what the U.S. should do, let me mention, too, that we're going to have a report um, that's coming out on April 23rd. Um, the, we had a task force on global infrastructure, and so there will be a whole set of recommendations. Um, the task force was co-chaired by Charlene Barshevsky, a former U.S. trade representative, Steve Hadley, former U.S. National Security Advisor. And so we feel like there's a good set of substantive recommendations in that report um, that we'd like to see implemented. Well, I look forward to reading it. We've been talking with John Hillman, who's Senior Fellow with the CSI Assignment Chair in Political Economy and Director of the Reconnecting Asia Project. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me.